Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. My guest today is Alan Kakshuri, who's a sports agent who managed three of the world's number one tennis players, including Novak Djokovic. He's also a best-selling author who specializes in high-performance habits and helping ambitious entrepreneurs and creative professionals to feel more energized, productive, and inspired. Having worked with some of the world's top athletes, Alan is a master at understanding the psychology behind the highest levels of performance. And I'm just going to warn you up front that this interview is super dense with a ton of information. Our conversation hits a wide variety of topics, but at the core of our conversation is deciphering the fundamental differences between people who are amateurs versus those who are professionals. What is it that makes top achievers so unique, no matter what their field of expertise might be? Is it their skills or their work ethic, or is it just genetic, or maybe they're just luckier than everybody else? Do those at the highest level of their craft set goals differently than everybody else does? Or is it that the most successful people simply have a different mindset? And if so, how can you cultivate the mindset of a true professional that's at the top of their game? If you ever felt like you could be or you should be further along in your career or in your business and you want to break through to that next level of potential, Elon is definitely somebody who can help you get there. If after listening to this interview, you are inspired to dig even deeper into his work, he has been kind enough to offer everybody that's listening a free copy of his 26,000-word Ultimate Guide to High Performance, which is going to show you how to accelerate your business or your career growth and get more high-value work done in a single day than, frankly, most people accomplish in a month. So if you want to download his ultimate guide to high performance, all you have to do is visit optimizeyourself.me slash Elon, and that is spelled A-L-L-O-N. So now without further ado, my interview with high performance expert Elon Kakshori. 
I'm here today with Alon Kakshuri, and I'm pretty confident that I probably messed up at least one or two syllables of that. Um, but Alon is a sports agent who managed three of the world's number one tennis players, including Novak Djokovic. And he's also a high performance expert who helps entrepreneurs amplify their focus, their productivity, and their energy so they can become leaders of their industry. And when I say words like focus and productivity and energy, I just get really, really excited and tingly because those are words that make me very, very excited. So Alan, I am very, very excited to have you here today to chat with me. Thanks, Zach. I'm excited as well. Uh, so just so people understand, where are you from? I'm from Israel, but actually I was born in Germany, raised in Switzerland, grew up in Europe, and I moved here about 10 years ago. But most of my family comes from here. Got it. Okay, well, I, we'll go a little bit deeper into your background because I really want to understand kind of the origin story of the guy that got to where you are now and why you're so into high performance and productivity and all these things that you geek out on, I geek out on. So I just think that this is going to be an hour of us geeking out on stuff. Digging through all of your materials, and I'm going to say you are a very, very prolific person because you have a lot of blog articles, you have a lot of ultimate guides, and there's a lot of stuff to go through. And I say that as a person that also produces a lot of content, and you've just made me feel, I don't know, maybe a little bit self-aware that, oh, I could be doing more. I felt like I was doing a lot, but then I see what this guy is doing, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I, I could definitely do more. So the reason I say that is because you have so many varying topics that you talk about, but there's one general area that I am just fascinated by that I really want to dive in deep. And we can go off into different tangents and talk about strategies or whatever we think about. But if there's one topic that I would love to pick your brain about for the next hour, it's about identifying the difference between people that are amateurs versus professionals. Because that is something I've really been interested in for a while, especially considering that this year specifically, I set the goal of wanting to become a participant on the TV show American Ninja Warrior. And I don't know if that's something you're familiar with or not. I've heard of it. And it's a topic that is very dear for me, not only amateur and um, professionals, but also within the professionals, you know, like a tennis player ranked 60 in the world versus a tennis player ranked five in the world. Like what are the differences there? Those are topics that I've really been thinking about. Exactly. And that's something that really interests me because I'm uh, building my Focus Yourself program right now. And it talks, it's funny because I read so many of the things that you're writing and I'm like, oh my God, I could have written this. Like we talk about such similar things like, you know, really clarifying your goals and having a clear picture of the destination, identifying your obstacles. Like there's so many things that just ring true. And one thing that I always think about, I don't know if you're familiar with James Clear, uh, but he's one of the world's foremost experts on habit formation and creating habits and um, just everything around the idea of uh, behavior. And one thing that he said that really struck me in our recent podcast was that if you look at Olympic athletes, all of them have the exact same goal. They all want gold medals. So what's the difference? And when you really dig in, it's all about their daily routines, their habits, and their mindsets. So that's kind of the direction I want this interview to go today. But before we go right into the weeds, I think it's really important that people understand your background and why your point of view specifically is going to be so fascinating. So just give us a little bit of a background of kind of your origin story and how you became an agent to some of the top tennis players in the world. Sure. It's a long story. I'll try and... Uh share the key features. I was born as the third kid of a family that originally comes from Persia, Iran, the Jewish family. And I was born in Germany. And my mother had a difficult birth with me. So I was born with a lot of 
physical and also mental issues. I had um, movement issues, uh, motoric movement issues. My, uh, I, I had delayed speech capabilities. And um, they, um, when, when we moved to Switzerland, the school system wanted to put me in a school for kids with special needs. And my mother was very resistant to that idea. And she managed to put me into a private international school. So I went to this private international school. I got a lot of support, a lot of um, personal tutors and physiotherapists and all sorts of other aids. And I'm really grateful to my parents for all the effort they put into me. But I really wanted to fit into the Swiss society. I really wanted to go to a normal school, a German-speaking school. I, I had this like drive that I like. I had also this feeling that I needed to go to a good school, a good education. And I started to also watch sports on TV and professional athletes. And I really thought, wow, look at these people. I'd love to be like them, like winning big competitions, working hard. And so I managed to convince uh, my mother and other people to give me a trial period at a primary Swiss school for a month. So I went to this trial period. I really worked as hard as I could. And after a month, we had this meeting in the teacher's room. And it was really a, a life-changing meeting. And, and the teacher said, look, we like Alan. He works hard. But he's just not good enough for the school. He will just not make it. And in that moment, my, my world fell apart. But a day or two later, I was watching a tennis match. And I was really asking myself, what would a world-class athlete do in that kind of situation? Like, just give up and let other people determine my future? And I said, no way. I'm going to prove those people wrong. And I'm never, ever going to let someone else determine my future again. So I really made it a mission to get into a Swiss school. I worked really hard. And then I found a school that had a prep class for a gymnasium. And gymnasiums are tough in Switzerland because only 15% of all the kids do a gymnasium. But I worked really hard in this prep class. And then I had to fulfill the entry um, criteria to get into the gymnasium, which I finally managed. And I was really, really proud. I was there in a Swiss gymnasium. And so I managed to complete the Swiss gymnasium. I got accepted to a top uh, university in London, the London School of Economics. I also took the New York bar exam. I did a master's in diplomacy. So I really had like a very thriving academic career. But at the same time, I was this big tennis fan. I shared this passion with my father. And this is a whole another story. It would take me another 15 minutes. But by coincidence, I became very friendly with a young and upcoming tennis player. He was being managed by one of the top agencies, but he was very unhappy with them. He actually asked me if I was willing to, to manage him. And I said, I have no clue how to manage tennis players. But I had a friend who was a top agent. And I contacted this friend. I said, look, I have this chance to recruit this guy. Would you be willing to do it together with me? And the guy said, yeah, absolutely. This guy, he's like, he's going to be awesome. We signed this player. It was a, a Russian guy called Marat Safin. And within a year, he won the US Open. Um, and he became one of the youngest world number one tennis players. And so suddenly my big passion tennis became my profession. And I was doing the job of my dreams. I was traveling to all these tournaments, all these fancy cities. I was dealing with the guys that I admired all my life. And uh, 
yeah, a dream became true. So having said all of that, you've kind of led us down the path from you know, dealing with some struggles as a young person, discovering tennis, and then getting into the world of tennis. But now what I'm more interested in is how you got to the point where you were one of the leaders in your industry, managing or being an agent or both. You can kind of help specify to my audience specifically kind of what area of expertise you had. But you were working with literally at one point, the number one tennis player on the entire planet. So how did you go from getting into this world to becoming one of the best at what you do? So a few things. First of all, I'm convinced that the reason I got into the tennis industry was that it was such a big dream. It was something like as a kid, I would visualize being a professional tennis player, which obviously I never ended up becoming and I never practiced to become, but it was an obsession. I was a tennis computer. I knew every fact about every player. I went to tournaments at a young age. So I, I, I really developed this passion, this expertise. And then I met this young player who became a world number one very quickly, Marat Safim, winning the US Open. I did something smart, partnering up with someone who was a top agent. So rather than trying to manage someone on my own without the expertise, I teamed up with one of the best agents. I could learn firsthand how the business works. And then once you have one top player, everything else opens up. You know, the door is open and everything becomes so much easier. And then, yeah, I was very dedicated to work very hard. I loved my job. It was a dream come true. And so I had um, a lot of top players. I had three world number one players. And I guess the combination of passion, hard work, and a bit of luck. I'm not a big believer in luck. Anybody that listens to my show know that I try to think about luck is something that is simply the intersection of hard work and opportunity. Because I feel like luck is such a great excuse for people that never achieve something to say, oh, well, that other person that's more successful, well, they just got lucky. So that, that's always kind of the magic word on my show whenever somebody says it took some luck. Um, I believe in bad luck. I believe that you can just get hit by a bus someday. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think that anybody that really creates success in their life, and I'm sure this is something that you can attest to as well as we go deeper down this rabbit hole, but anybody that quote unquote looks like they have luck, there's a whole combination of things going on in their habits, their behaviors, and the mindsets that got them where they are. Um, but before going in that direction, what I am very, very curious about is what you actually did on a daily basis. Because saying you're a manager or an agent can mean a lot of different things. And the reason that I asked this question to kind of help clarify what your duties were as an agent or a manager is because I don't really have people to listen to the show that are into sports or into athletics at a professional level. The reason that I'm so fascinated by sports is because I'm trying to take all of the practices, all of the mindsets, all of the fitness expertise, the health expertise, the high performance expertise, and bring that into creative fields. So the people that listen to this show do creative work. They live most, if not all of their days in front of computers. And I'm trying to blend the worlds of athletic performance and high intense creative work and bring them together. And I know that because you're somebody that's in the online business world, you very much understand how to translate a lot of the things in the sports world to the business world. So that's why I think it's very helpful to just kind of understand and get a picture of the kinds of things that you would do in your business and for your athletes. Absolutely. Let me just uh, share a word on luck. I believe in the short run, you know, luck can help make shortcuts. In the long run, I don't believe in luck. In the short run, you know, having had a client who became number one within a year, that accelerated my career, but I'm definitely sure I would have achieved it 
anyways, because I was working hard, I was passionate, I had a vision. Um, yeah, so that on luck, and I totally agree with the quote of um, opportunity meeting hard work, that's when you get lucky. I, I, I love that, absolutely. Now, as an agent, the primary job is to take care of all the commercial aspects related to a client, meaning getting him uh, commercial deals like an apparel deal, a racket deal, other sponsors, getting him appearance fees when he plays at tournaments or exhibitions, taking care of his PR and marketing. But here, here's the connection to high performance. In order to make a lot of money with a client, he needs to perform well. That's really the bread and butter in tennis. So as an agent, you're always thinking, how can we get our client to the next level? Who is the next coach who can take him to the next level? Who should be in his team? What are the other factors that can help him really perform at his best? And for example, with Novak Djokovic, I was the person who found him. His coach then, who he now rehired, and ever since he rehired him, he won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. So that was one of the things that I really studied, you know, like who could be the kind of coach that would fit into his mentality, his family's mentality, and his budget at the time, and all these kind of considerations. So in the end, the agent really wants to be obsessed about the fact, how can I help my client perform at his best? Because once he does Everything else starts working. All the commercial opportunities come in. You know, we all, like, we all try and uh, pride ourselves about how capable and how good we are and what amazing deals we got. But the, in the end, it is really the performance and maybe the charisma and a few other little characteristics that define how much money a client will earn. Well, and that's a smart approach as well, because as you know, in the world of productivity, you're always trying to find leverage. You're always trying to say, all right, what is the most impactful lever that I can pull or the biggest domino that I can knock over and start knocking over other ones? And for a lot of agents, I'm sure they're always focusing on the next deal, the biggest dollar signs, but you are playing a longer game and saying, well, all of those deals and everything that we want to do gets infinitely easier if we just focus on one thing and that's making our player better. 100%. And you know, when we talk about what separates the top performers from everyone else, there are a few things, but one of the characteristics is really be able, the ability to see the longer game. You know, like the opposite of a top performer is an alcoholic. And an alcoholic is characterized by really thinking of his next drink, usually. You know, like once he, he gets into this addictive cycle, that's his focus, the next drink. The opposite is someone who can think, what am I going to do tomorrow, in a week, in a month, in a year, three years, five years, or even 10 years. The longer we can stretch our vision and take the kind of action that serves that vision, sometimes at the expense of our instant gratification, the more we're moving towards being a top performer. Yeah, you could not be preaching more to the choir right now. In the last two weeks, I've probably written 15,000 words that echo the exact same sentiment as I've been building my program. What I'm doing is I'm helping people first break down their goals. I'm using the Go Far framework, which is a five-step framework. The first one is goals. And the idea is that you can say something like, well, I want to be a famous tennis player. Well, that's much better than, like you said, just somebody that's looking for the next thing today or tomorrow. But I want to be a famous tennis player isn't necessarily a very clear goal. 
So like you said, you have to start chunking it down to five years, where would I be? One year, where would I be? What does that mean in six months? Well, what does that mean in a month? And how do I break down that month into weeks? So I've gone through some of your materials and I've seen that you too are also very much in the mindset of breaking everything down and doing exercises and writing it down. So in your mind, if I'm somebody that says, well, I kind of feel like I'm just taking it day to day. And it's not necessarily, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I don't have a lot of people that are alcoholics listening to my show. If I am, well, then, you know, hopefully they can find some help. Um, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of people in my industry and other creative industries that are always looking for, quote unquote, the next job. I just need a paycheck. Oh, you know what? This is an opportunity. I'm just going to accept this job. I'm going to take it. And then another one comes along and then another one comes along. And then a decade later, they're coming to me saying, can you coach me because I'm in a job that I hate. I don't know how I got here. It's been a decade and this is not what I want to be doing for a living. And I feel like it's because they're only playing the short game and not playing the long game. So the issue is that one thing that people really avoid doing, and I, I include myself often into these people, is we avoid spending time to think about our life. You know, we, we avoid like taking a reflective walk on the beach or sitting on an armchair for an hour with no phone and no interruption and asking ourselves key questions like, what is it that I want to achieve? Who is it that I want to be? What are the kind of contributions that I want to make? What kind of relationships do I want to have with key people in our lives? And the reason we like to avoid spending thinking time, there, there are several reasons, but one main reason is that we live in our comfort zone. Some of these questions might require us to take the kind of bold action that is a bit uncomfortable, and it might really make us have to do the kind of actions that uh, will require some sacrifices. And the issue with long-term goals, what makes it so difficult, and the issue with doing like um, poor habits, it's the same issue, is that we don't see the consequences of our actions very quickly. Meaning that, say you eat like a, a hamburger every day, for the first week you, you, you might not feel different, you might not see any differences. Maybe even after two or three weeks you won't see the differences. It will only accumulate over time. And the same um, strikes true if we have like these big dreams and goals in the long run and we start working towards them it might take weeks or months or years till these habits compound together and we really see a difference. And so many people, I believe, stop just before making their breakthrough, just before um, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, they feel fed up and they revert back to their old routines or their old habits. And so back to spending time to really think what it is we want I think one of the most valuable things we can do is to give ourselves an hour a week or 20 minutes a day or 20 minutes every second day to really just embrace silence and ask ourselves powerful questions and trying to discover exactly who it is we want to be and what it is we really want to do. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. 
Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo-Driven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So looking at this idea of trying to set aside time, think about who is it that I actually want to be? And I love the fact that you introduce identity into this. And it wasn't just about, well, here's a goal that I want to achieve. I want to make X amount of dollars. I want to have this kind of job. I want to own this kind of car. It was more about this is who I want to become. This is who I want to be to other people. I think that's really, really important. Identity is a huge component. But I love the fact that you're talking about behaviors and habits and this picture of somebody that's eating a hamburger yeah, for a day or two, you're not going to feel anything. I mean, if I ate a hamburger, I might feel like crap. But for the most part, you're not going to see any difference. The scale is not going to change. Your clothes are going to fit the same. But your behaviors become habits. And eventually, your habits become character. But because it takes so long for that to happen, you don't really notice it. You just want that instant gratification, which is why so many people find it so hard to stick with long-term goals, like you said. So right now we're kind of talking about the difference between people that don't really have a very clear vision for where they want to go versus people that are very intentional and take the time to do this. But now let's go to the next level. If we're talking about the types of athletes that you've worked with, they clearly have goals and they clearly have vision. They're not just kind of wandering through life and taking the next job. And they very much have dedicated themselves to their craft. So now what is the difference between people that are, say, really highly skilled, talented amateur tennis players, or even the lower ranked professionals versus the top in the world when it comes to very clearly setting their goals and then building habits? The main difference that I've discovered between even a guy ranked 56th in the world and a tennis player who's ranked two or three in the world, or let me start with what they have similar. In my opinion, their technical skills are similar. Their athletic skills are similar. Meaning that as a tennis player, the differences are minor, if any. But what separates the very best from everyone else is that they have made their career a lifestyle, meaning that 
while both the number 60 and the number five in the world might practice a few hours a day and very hard, the top players, they understand that everything they do is connected to their success. What they eat, when they sleep, who they hang out with, how they schedule their time, how they schedule their tournaments, all of it is connected to becoming a world number one tennis player. All is connected to building the kind of high-performance lifestyle that generates sustainable and lasting success. And, you know, the reason that is so important is to be a top tennis player or to be a top creative professional, we need to embrace the uncomfortable. I think it was Carl Newport who said, like for, I think, more like entrepreneurs, but it probably applies for any field. He said that in order to become successful in the future, in order to make a lot of money, you need to master two skills. You need to be able to learn difficult things very fast, and you need to be able to produce at an elite level, meaning that like your favorite singer or your favorite film director or producer, they're probably people who produce high-value content on a regular basis. They're not one-time wonders. And in order to do that or in order to play at the top level in tennis on a consistent basis, you need to live a high-performance lifestyle. You need to take care that you feel recovered as much as that you practice hard and that you improve your skills. And you need to also have this growth mindset of continuously improving your skills, which is not easy and that's something very few people do. And I personally really believe that happiness, a big element of happiness is growth. And how many people do you really know that have a very active growth plan? Like, how am I going to get better in a week, in a month, in a year from now? So that is another thing that separates the very best from everyone else. But it's, again, part of this lifestyle, understanding that everything connects to these big, ambitious goals. Everything, everything that you do shapes who you are. And, um, you know, that's why they, there's, I think, a quote that, like, someone said that everything you do counts. You know, if you have, like, one really poor habit, like, say you love procrastinating for two, three hours watching TV, if you really want to become the best at what you do, eventually that will pay its price. That will cost its price. Like, because in the end, top performance is a lifestyle. Well, and I love that you're talking about lifestyle so deeply because I believe exactly the same thing. We talked about this earlier when we talked about you're creating this vision and setting your goals. It's not just about the goals. It's not just about measuring the bottom line or creating like this smart goal that's measurable and timely and all these other things. Identity is such a huge part of changing your behaviors and ultimately achieving something. And you're right, it is a lifestyle. And for example, when I started going after this goal this year to participate on American Ninja Warrior, people just thought, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. That should be fun. It's like, no, you don't understand. I'm setting a very, very difficult goal that pushes me drastically out of my comfort zone. Because in order to achieve something like this, I have to adopt the identity of what it means to be a quote-unquote ninja warrior and what does that lifestyle mean? So I'm always asking myself the question with everything, whether it's sleep or whether it's what I'm eating or how many hours I'm training per week or how I'm treating my children. I'm always thinking, and it sounds kind of goofy, but is this what a ninja warrior would do? 
And that has completely changed so many of my behaviors and my choices and my habits. And I still have a few bad ones that I'm trying to work out that have taken me a few more months than I thought. But at the end of the day, I'm not asking myself the question, well, what exercise am I supposed to do today? Or what am I supposed to be eating? I'm just always thinking, well, what would a ninja warrior do, right? So I think that this identity thing is so important. And what I want you to go even deeper into, because I love these two concepts, are the ideas of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And also this concept of embracing discomfort, because those two really, really go together. And I keep stressing, I mean, this is basically like in the, the cornerstone of my website and my program, is that you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Because if you can't, you can't grow. So talk to me a little bit more about growth mindset versus fixed mindset and this idea of embracing comfort. Sure. And before I do just a word on um, top performers and everyone else, I had a client who was ranked 60 in the world. And like, uh, I think he went out late at night or I don't know, he did something. And I just asked him like, uh, tell me, do you think Nadal or Djokovic or Federer would do that? And he answered to me, why do I care? I'm not them. So he didn't embrace their identity. So I love how you try and ask yourself, would a ninja warrior do that? And, and exactly, it's like trying to create the identity of the person you want to be. And one thing that I also found very important is that we often underestimate what we're able to do in the long run and we overestimate what we're able to do in the short run. And again, the theme of patience is so critical. You know, to have big, ambitious goals, but at the same time to chunk them up in more manageable short-term goals so that we build um, our confidence and enjoy short-term successes that like really move us towards the big goal. Now, to the topic of growth mindset, it's one of my favorite topics and it, uh, it was um, dubbed by Carol Dweck who wrote a book called Mindset that I recommend all your readers. And um, basically, a growth mindset means that we think that it is effort and hard work that helps us achieve the goals that we have. Whereas a fixed mindset believes that it is talent and natural traits that help us um, become successful. And Carol Dweck did an amazing study with, um, I think it was 10-year-old or 12-year-old kids. And I want to share this study because it really changed how I think about praise and how I think about like effort and fixed traits. I'll try and remember it. Basically, she gave all the kids a very easy task to do first. And then some kids were praised with a fixed mindset. They were told, wow, you're so gifted. Look how you managed to do this. And the other half of the group were praised with a growth mindset. They were told, wow, you worked really, really hard. Look, when you work hard, look what you're able to do. In the second part, the kids were all given the choice to either do a very difficult um, puzzle or another easy puzzle? What do you think the fixed mindset kids chose? Well, I'm sure that they would choose the easier one because they're thinking, well, based on my internal character traits, I'm not sure this is something that I can do. Exactly. And the growth mindset guys chose the harder ones. Then in a third test, she gave all of them a very hard puzzle that they were definitely not going to be able to um, solve. The guys from the growth mindset tried harder. They enjoyed the process. And the guys from the fixed mindset, they gave up much quicker. And then finally, and this is the most fascinating part, she gave them all a very easy riddle again, similar to the first riddle. 
and the growth mindset kids did much better and the fixed mindset kids actually did less well than the first test that they did. And the reason this is so important is we see even just the way we praise ourselves or kids has such a massive impact on our performance. And the reason why fixed mindset is so problematic is that when we have fixed mindset, we always feel that we need to justify our talent. And if we mess something up, then it means we're not that talented. So often we either choke on purpose to show people, look, I'm not even trying, or we avoid the real challenges. And so to embrace the uncomfortable, it is crucial to have a growth mindset, to have the kind of mindset that the process, the journey, is as important as the outcome, the goal. And the reason it is so important is because that's how we learn skills, that's how we build our character. And once we understand that life is about building character more than it is about achieving specific outcomes, that is when we're able to embrace the struggle. That's when we're able to embrace the uncomfortable. And um, there is an irony to the whole story because once we detach from specific outcomes, we achieve so much more. Now, it is a bit confusing, and so I'll try and bring another analogy. I think it was Matthew Seen who wrote the book Bounce, who calls it double think. On the one hand, you want to have big goals. You really want to achieve, for example, becoming a ninja warrior. You're, you want to work towards it. But at the same time, when you have these pressure moments, like you're in a competition or in a big negotiation or even in a date, you want to let go of any outcome. You want to be satisfied with giving your best and enjoying the process because by doing that, you're able to really perform at your best without interrupting yourself with negative thoughts like, don't mess up, don't screw this up. And when you have those thoughts, that's when you choke. That's when you stutter when you have a presentation or when you mess up in a date or when, as a tennis player, you make a double fault in big points because you suddenly interrupt the skills that you've developed and that almost happen effortlessly and subconsciously. You interrupt them with conscious thoughts like, okay, what should I do not to mess up? Does that make sense? Not only does it make sense, but there are like four different threads that I would love to pull out of what you just said, because there's so much goodness in there that I want to break down. Um, there are actually two things that I want to bring up. One of them is I kind of want to put a, a final little exclamation point on growth mindset versus uh, fixed mindset, because there's one additional point that I think is super important. And then I want to go into this idea of process versus outcome, because I mean, I could talk for hours about kind of discovering that whole idea. But uh, first, when it comes to uh, fixed versus growth mindset, there's an additional uh, kind of point of reference that I think is going to help a lot of people understand the difference that may not already. And that's the idea of control. So it's, it's eerie that we're talking about this because literally four hours ago, I was writing all about internal locus of control versus external locus of control and how it relates to the uh, fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. And if you're looking at somebody with a fixed mindset, they're often blaming the world for their problems because they don't feel like they have control over them. So for example, if they're late for work, oh, it was the traffic. 
or if the boss yells at them, oh, well, he's just a you know what, you know, or you know, for if somebody sends them, a, you know, an email like, oh, well, that was so rude of them. Where somebody that has a growth mindset is thinking about an internal locus of control, so they're thinking, I was late today, not because of the traffic, but because I didn't plan properly. Or they can look at their boss that's yelling at them and saying, oh, you know what? I know that he's having problems in his life right now, so I accept the fact that he's angry. But you know, not all of it has to do with my behavior, but some of it might have actually been warranted because of X, Y, Z. So I think that this concept of control, at least for me when I was first learning about fixed versus growth, I was like, oh, that makes sense because so many people want to defer responsibility for where they are in life to other people or other circumstances. But when you do that, you no longer have control over your own success either. Absolutely. And you know, um, this feeling of having control of your life is so critical for building self-esteem and confidence. And at the same time, when we look for excuses, um, it becomes a character trait. And I worked with, for example, I worked with a tennis player who was, she had a losing streak. And every match that she lost, there was a justification that was beyond her power. And she didn't even notice that like she was looking for excuses or justifying her losses. And I'm convinced she really believed all the excuses to an extent that it was impossible to convince her that those were excuses. So one of the key things, I think, is for us to really become aware when we use excuses and our victim mentality and really work towards Becoming the kind of person who takes responsibility. I think in the end, and responsibility doesn't mean we need to do everything by ourselves. We can hire a coach, have a mentor, create the right kind of environment. But knowing that ultimately it's our life and we are responsible for the outcomes. And, and we need to change the things we can and accept the things we can change. But we need to really eliminate blaming other people. And once we do that, life becomes so much easier. Yeah, I mean, especially in sports, just because sports is televised, you can always see the difference between the professionals, so to speak, but the really true high performers. Because when something goes wrong, they're pitching a fit and they're pointing fingers and they're yelling at the ref or yelling at their teammates. But then with the guys that are really at the highest level, you can just see that they're in this flow. They're in this zone in their mind where they're just going through whatever the move might be or the motion might be. And you can see that they're thinking to themselves, regardless of whatever it was that just transpired, how can I be better in the next point or the next play or the next quarter? Great point. And there's a, an interesting twist to it. We also need to accept that we're human. So we all have our moments of weakness and we have the top player who freaks out at the referee. And one more thing that separates the best from everyone else is how quickly we recover from our letdowns. You know, if we get really upset or annoyed, how quickly do we recover? Or we have a terrible business deal or a bad day at work. How quickly do we recover? Some people need 10 minutes, some need an hour, some people a week, and some people, they have grievances that go back 10 years ago and they're still angry about them. And at the same time, we need to... Uh, build momentum when things go well. And the top performers, they gain a lot of confidence when things go well. They build momentum. They feel invincible. And other people, they feel like an imposter. You know, they think it was luck. They think it was coincidence. So even their successes, 
don't really last long into their identity. And, and those are two traits that really separate the top performers from everyone else. And the, the other area that I want to go back to, because I said that I wanted to kind of pull out two different threads, and I, I want to make sure that I don't lose this one before we uh, keep moving forwards. Um, but I really want to go deeper into this idea of process versus outcome. This is something that I've read about a lot, and I've practiced some in my life. But I'm going to be honest that until maybe a year or two ago, I didn't internally feel it in the core of my being. But what has happened to me this year, and I'm sure you can talk about how this has happened with other athletes as well, is that I started out at the beginning of the year. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is a sport that I've been kind of casually watching from the couch for two or three years. I really enjoy it. And I always kind of think to myself, huh, I wonder if I could do that. And if I'm watching tennis or I'm watching NFL football or I'm watching basketball or baseball, at my age and my fitness level, I can't watch any of those sports and realistically think to myself, huh, I bet I could do that. However, with Ninja Warrior, anybody can sign up and participate. And if your story is good enough and your audition tape is good enough, they will let you on the show. I mean, they've had 75-year-old men on the show that have completed one, two, three obstacles. So every time I watched it, I thought, well, I don't really have an excuse because technically, I know that if I applied myself, I could get on the show. So at first, it started as a goal. It started as an outcome. I would love to be on the show. But then I thought to myself, now hold on a second. If I were to put in all of the effort necessary and I spend over a year training for this and I try to get on the show and I don't, I am a complete and total failure. No matter what I've put in, whatever the process has been, whatever actions I've taken, whatever progress I've made over a year, I'm a complete and total failure if I don't get on the show. So I thought to myself, how can I make this about the process and not about the outcome? So I said, I don't want my goal to be on the show. I want my goal to be that in a year, I am in good enough shape to be on the show. And what that later broke down to was, all right, what are the habits that I need to do every single day to meet monthly benchmarks to then get to that point where by the end of the year, I can be in good enough shape that I can be considered to be on the show. But then what I discovered, and this is really what I want you to go deeper on because I'm not even sure I can explain it yet. I've only been training for, let's see, so it's the end of September when we're recording this. I don't know when it's going to air. Um, so that means it's been about nine months that I've really been in this mindset of I'm training to be a ninja warrior, right? But what's happened is I've learned to love the process so much and embracing the process has changed the quality of my health, has completely changed my body composition, has changed my energy level, has changed my relationship with my family, and has opened up so many doors and opportunities just because I talk about the goal. I don't even care if I get on the show anymore because the process has been so awesome. So is that kind of what you were talking about? Absolutely. You know, on the one hand, results often are important and we get very fixated and we all want to experience results. But at the end of our life, we're going to be remembered not for how much money we did and on what TV shows we were, but we're going to be remembered for the character that people remember us for. And this character can be things like loving, kind, person with integrity. It can be ambitious, hardworking. That can be... Uh, all sorts of different things that, um, that stick much more than the actual outcomes that we achieved. And I think what you are talking about is that in the process of preparing for that show, you develop character traits 
that have become very valuable and that make you feel good, that make you become healthier, that make people appreciate you on a different level, and that literally changed you. This process changed who you are, if I understand you right. And so with tennis players, you know, you don't know if a young 10-year-old kid is ever going to be a world number one in the world. But if this kid makes it a goal to really build the character of a top athlete in terms of moral character traits like being a fair athlete, a fair sportsman, a loving, kind person, but also traits like discipline, hardworking, competitive, a, a true fighter, a true warrior, then that will be valuable regardless if that boy or girl ever becomes a top player. And that's what I mean with process. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. And I also think another thing that's so important to point out, and you've kind of mentioned this a little bit as well, but, um, and you can talk about this in the world of tennis, but it really seems like the more that I've studied high performance and I've studied the top performers in any area of expertise in the world, you have people that are just ridiculously gifted and they just have had it from birth. And that's a, a trait that they have. But so, so few people that get to top levels are there because of their God-given talent. It's because of all these other character-building traits that they've actually gotten where they are. And at least in my industry, not in uh, anything athletic, but in the world of film editing and working in Hollywood and working with celebrities and producers and directors, what I find is that the people that are really gifted and talented, for the most part, take it for granted and they don't realize that their character doesn't align with where they want to go. And they're basically just wasted talent because all they focused on is the fact that, hey, I'm smart, I'm talented, I'm creative, you should hire me. But nobody really wants to work with them because they haven't focused on character. So my experience is um, slightly different. And that is that most people who seem very talented, they may have actually done more work when, they're very, when, when they were very young or they were pushed by parents, or they did something that 
made sure that they learned that skill. It didn't just come naturally. I mean, some people are more gifted than others, but I, I don't know anyone who became very successful without hard work. But I, what I do know is that people with a fixed mindset, they try and hide the hard work they did because they want to be known as a really talented person. And they want to also seem like they're not putting hard work into it because they're scared that if they put hard work into it and they don't, it, they don't manage their goals, then people might think actually they're not as talented as people perceive them to be. So, and, and there's a lot of literature, I think. Um, have you heard of Anders Ericsson? I have, yes. Mm -hmm. So he came up with this 10,000-hour rule, but it's not really 10,000 hours. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, or maybe it's 5,000 hours of deliberate practice or whatever it requires for different um, tasks. And deliberate practice is really like engaging with um, difficult, challenging things and having either a coach or someone who like, pushes you to your limit, gives you feedback. And what he found out was that people like Mozart or Federer or some of the guys we dub as really talented, that they got a lot of support when they were very young. They, they did a lot of deliberate practice at a very young age. So I don't know if that's very different in the movie industry or other industries, but I think um, often talent is helpful, but it's overrated because without hard work, you'll still not enjoy sustainable success. And then, of course, what you say about character is absolutely right. True character comes from hard work and very deliberate work and with a consciousness of who it is we want to be, not only what it is we want to achieve. Well, and one thing that I want to pull out of that that I think is definitely very different in my world than yours is I am surrounded every day by overrated talent. <laughs> Anybody that works in Hollywood would be like, yep, nope, totally get that. So I think that in your world, in the world of sports and sports agency and business management, you probably are around people that could not even make it to your level or walk in the door if they didn't work hard enough to cultivate the talent that they had to get there. In my world, you can be a flash in the pan, so to speak. And you can be a one-hit wonder where you made some movie in your backyard with an iPhone and somebody, quote unquote, discovers you and says, wow, what an amazing talent. But then all of a sudden, when they're confronted with the actual process and all of the hard work necessary to maintain that talent consistently, that's when it all falls apart. Because again, like we've been saying, they don't have the habits. They don't have all of the high performance mentality. So the only thing that they have to hang on to is their talent. But in your world, you can't just wake up, quote unquote, being a talented tennis player and imagine that you're going to become a professional without hundreds or thousands of hours of practice. And I love this idea that you brought up deliberate practice, because I think that when people hear about this 10,000 hours rule, they think that it's just about accruing the numbers. But the analogy that I like to give people that kind of, and this was the analogy that I had heard that kind of made this click in my mind where I'm like, well, what's deliberate practice? And somebody said to me, you know, how, uh, how good are you at driving? I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty proficient. It's like, well, I've, I've been driving now for 22 years, but am I that much better driver now than I was when I was 25? It's not like all of a sudden, because I have 22 years of driving experience, I can be in NASCAR. Just because I'm in the car three hours a day, that's not deliberate practice. So go a little bit deeper with me about the, the high performance mentality when it comes to putting in the hours versus actual deliberate practice. This is a great point because um, progress really comes from combining stress with recovery. If you hit the gym, 
that's how you build muscles. You stress certain muscle groups and then you give yourself recovery time. And people always think that success is related to how many hours of work you put. But recovery is equally important. And the reason recovery is so important is to really get good at something, you need to do the kind of work that is difficult. And I think, especially with entrepreneurs, maybe even creative professionals, we like to do what I call busy work. You know, like we like to spend as much time as we can answering emails, doing the kind of things that don't really push ourselves, like, I don't know, creating uh, movies or video spots or content or whatever it is. And at the same time, we can also say that with learning. You know, you can go to a, a language school and like uh, do your homework, or you can really make it a task, like deliberately to improve, to really push your limits, to really get continuous feedback. And what I'm trying to say is that doing the proper work, the deep kind of work, takes a lot of effort. And that requires a lot of recovery time. And if you take someone like Roger Federer, who's still a world-class player at the age of 37, one of his secrets is to play less tournaments than anyone else, probably to practice less hours than most of his competitors, and just to schedule his day much smarter. When he steps on the court, he gives 120%, whether in practice or in a match. But as a result, he needs to practice less, he needs to play less, and he really focuses on recovery time. And like, uh, I think it was a year and a half ago that he took a six-month sabbatical and he came back and had like one of his best years ever at the age of 35. So spending a lot of hours working hard, it's important, but not the most critical thing. Doing smart work and combining it with recovery is the key not only to be more successful, but to also be more happy, to be more fulfilled, ironically, to have more time for your friends and family, and to have what I like to call an awesome life. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think that the the idea of deliberate practice and really thinking about it's just not the hours that you're putting in, it's about the quality of the hours is, I mean, that, that's the perfect way to put it. Because like for me, for example, when I started training at the beginning of the year, and I've done plenty of athletic training in the past, but not nearly at this level. So at first it was just about how many hours can I fit in during the week based on my work schedule and based on having family. And I did that for months and months and months just to kind of get myself back into shape, so to speak. But then all of a sudden I started to really wear down and I wasn't recovering and I just couldn't push through the workouts. And I was like, man, what's going on? Like, I just kind of feel physically burned out. And then what I started to really do, and this goes back to what you were saying about feedback, I really started to measure and track my readiness. So I bought uh, what's called the Aura Ring. And I actually have an entire podcast interview coming out about this piece of technology that measures my heart rate variability. It measures my body temperature while I'm sleeping, measures my overall recovery and the strength of my nervous system. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to listen to this thing and do whatever it tells me to do. And it kept telling me that I was tired and I needed to recover more. I'm like, all right, well, if the little ring on my finger and my phone app tells me to rest, then I'm not going to the gym today. And what I found is that as I was training less, I was becoming infinitely stronger when I did show up 
And that's because I had feedback and I had benchmarks. And I think that's such a huge component when you're talking about deliberate practice, where you're not just saying, well, I have to go to the gym for an hour. You're saying, I need to go to the gym for an hour. But last week, I burned 550 calories. Therefore, I need to try and burn 600 calories, which means that I have to push just a little bit harder. Or last week, I was able to do this many reps with a kettlebell. This week, I have to do at least one more. And I feel like just that little mindset shift is a huge difference in the long run when we're talking again about character and identity and behavior. That's what really adds up over time. 100%. And one thing that I think really transformed the life of anyone I work with is this concept of power blocks. And you can do maybe three or four power blocks at most a day because they really require a lot of focus and energy. But power blocks are, and they can you can do them in any way you want, but for me, there are 55-minute um, blocks of time where I do nothing but one high-value activity, free of any distraction. And once I complete it, I take at least a five-minute break where I get up, move my body, maybe do some breathing exercises, and just rejuvenate my energy. And then the second thing is that, yeah, you need to track your progress. And I have like a, a system where I track it on a periodic, monthly, weekly basis, but there are very simple things that one can do as well. And my wife just invented a tracking system where she gives herself 10 points every single day on 10 criteria. like one or two points might be related to business. Did I create um, valuable content today? Did I do a high value activity? Then three points might be related to family. Like was I loving with my husband? Was I loving with my kids? For each kid, one point. And then like, did I do sports today? That might be another point. And you can do whatever you choose up until 10 points. And then you rate yourself every single day and you give yourself the scoring. And like that, you can really see just on a day-to-day basis, are you living the kind of life that you really want? Yeah, I love that concept, the, the idea of measuring based on all the different areas of your life that are important. Um, and I love the fact that you talked about power blocks as well. That's something that I call time blocks, which is essentially the same thing. But it's just this concept of during this period of time, the world disappears. Phone is in airplane mode. Email is turned off. There's no social media. There's no random browser tabs with the latest news feeds or whatever it is. And the reason that I do that and the reason that I teach it to all of my students and my coaching clients is that it takes up to 20 minutes for your brain to get into that state of creative flow. But once it gets there, you just dive way down into that creative rabbit hole until you hear a ding or you hear a chime, or you just want to check your email super, super quick for one minute, it resets the clock and it takes another 15 to 20 minutes to get back into that state. So what I always, just like you're saying, I will basically do, for me, it's roughly about an hour as well. And the most that I can do, and it's taken years to get to this point, because I basically treat focus like a skill, no different than a sport where you just slowly, gradually work up the strength. I can get to the point where I can do five or six hours worth of dedicated creative time, but that's it. But if you look at the amount that I'm able to accomplish in just six hours, it's far more than I used to be able to accomplish in a 12-hour day when I wasn't following that habit because I was just kind of, all right, I'll do 10 minutes of work. And oh, there's an email and I should probably respond to that. All right, let me do a few more minutes of work. Oh, look, Facebook. All right, well, I should probably get back and edit a scene for five minutes. And 
it's just this endless hamster wheel of busyness that you get sucked into that just never ends. So I love the fact that you brought up these power blocks or these time blocks. One point here is that like, uh, like you made an analogy to the gym and yes, focus is literally training the brain. And like, it's good to look at the brain like a muscle that can grow. And there's like proof that we can literally change the physical architecture of the brain by being focused. And I could um, mention some examples and studies, but um, I write about them a lot um, as well. But this is one thing that we've discovered in the last 10 years, no matter what your age is, through focus and attention, you can change the structure of your brain, which I think is the best news ever for any one of us. Yeah, I could not agree more. Because again, talking about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, if you're thinking to yourself, Ugh, I'm just somebody that's distracted all the time and I can never pay attention. I'm just so ADD, right? You hear people that say that all the time now. It's like, well, yes, there are certain people that are diagnosed with a medical condition and the way that their brain is wired makes it very difficult for them to focus. I happen to be one of those people that was diagnosed with adult onset ADD. But what I found is first knowing that helped me make so much sense of my life and my behaviors and why I felt the way that I did. But then when I realized that there's this thing called neuroplasticity and I had a growth mindset and I could change the way that my brain was wired, I just said, I'm going to learn everything I possibly can to cultivate the skill. No different than if somebody had said, well, you just have this medical condition where your muscles are weaker than most people. But if you put in extra work in the gym and you really focus on your nutrition and you really focus on your recovery, you can actually get stronger than other people. It's just going to take a little bit more dedication to get there. That's essentially what I've dedicated the last decade plus in my life is learning how can I basically turn focus from a disability into a superpower. And that's really why I wanted to create the program that I have and why I wanted to have an expert on like you are because you understand all of these concepts as well. Thank you. That's a great effort on, on your behalf. And it really is true. You know, now you even have people recovering from mild strokes that they get trained to focus their attention on moving their um, body parts that they can't move anymore due to their stroke. And, and people are like, the medical world is discovering tremendous stories of recovery because the brain is able to relearn abilities that have been destroyed through the stroke. So I think in the near future, we're going to hear so much more about neuroplasticity and it's so exciting and it gives hope to any one of us that we can change the state we're in. Well, I want to be very respectful of your time. And we've talked about a ton of big picture concepts and talking about character and creating a vision and process versus outcome and all these other things. And then here at the very end, we've dug into a couple of very small, actionable things that people can do. I want to know, is there anything else? Is there one more quick tip that you could give? Because you have ultimate guide after ultimate guide with tons of tips. And I'll make sure to send people to be able to download your stuff. But if you could just think of one more off the top of your head that kind of goes along with the first two that you gave, what would it be? It's very simple. You know, Tim Ferriss wrote a book, Titans of Giants, I think it's called. Uh, Tools of Titans. Tools of Titans, exactly. And what struck me about that book, because he interviewed so many fascinating people, but at the beginning of the book, he speaks about a few habits that a majority of people do. And one specific habit that I think over 88% of all the people he interviewed do, and it's so obvious, we all know about it, 
but so many people are resistant to doing it. Any idea what I'm talking about? I'm going to guess it's meditation. Exactly. So like if someone wants instant results, then daily meditation is the one thing that really transformed my life because I discovered that I'm not my thoughts, that I can actually change my thoughts. And it helped me create inner calmness no matter what was going on in my life or is going on in my life. And there are so many cool apps, like for example, Headspace, that help us get into the flow of meditation. And to make that a daily practice, I think is the one thing that I would recommend to anyone. Yep. I am on the exact same page. I think that if our roles were reversed and you were doing the podcast and I was the guest and you said, can you just think of one little habit that anybody can do that's going to help them focus? That's exactly what I would have said is meditation. I mean, it's even the same app that I would have recommended. And it has nothing to do with me setting you up for the question or you and I talking about it beforehand. We just are obviously wired the same way because I would have said meditation and I would have also said Headspace because that's the app that I use. And it's something that I find that do I stick to it 365 days a year? No, I am very human and I definitely get derailed and off track. But what I've discovered is that every single time that I get off track and I don't stick with it as a regular habit, I find myself thinking, why am I having such a hard time getting into this time block? Or why is it harder to write a thousand words in a morning like I usually can do? Why am I shorter with my family? oh, all right, I haven't been doing the meditation. Like it, it, the correlation is so clear. And if I were to chart it on a graph, like I could scientifically prove that the quality of my life changes when I do or when I don't meditate. Exactly, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And you know, permission to be human is another big thing. We, many people meditate and then we fall off, we get busy. And as long as we realize that and then we can recommit, it's great. And there's a great quote about how much time should you spend meditating. And I forgot who said it, but the person said, normally you should meditate like 10, 20 minutes a day, except when you're very busy. When you're very busy, meditate for an hour a day. One of my favorite quotes of all time. I mean, it's, it's eerie how you and I could be on opposite ends of the planet and it's just like we're reading from the same playbook. It's crazy. Cool, super cool. Yeah, no, I love that quote. That's definitely one of my favorites. And I think it was popularized by Tim Ferriss. Obviously, you and I are both Tim Ferriss fans. But I think the first time I heard the quote was from him. Um, I don't know where it's actually attributed to and if he said it or if somebody else said it, like some stoic that he's you know a fan of, whatever it is. Um, but it's definitely a quote that has stuck with me for years. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so on that note, we could literally do this for hours. Um, but I've Definitely want to be respectful of your time. So if somebody's listening to this and they're saying, man, this guy knows a lot about high performance and developing mental toughness and really becoming the best of the best, how can they find you and how can they find some of your best materials? Cool. So um, I'll give you a link um, where I prepared an ultimate guide uh, to high performance for your readers. And, and that would be a great uh, way to get to know my material a bit better. And I'll also give you a link to my website because it's www.aloncakshuri.com, which is not easy to spell. And then finally, I have a Facebook group called the High Performance Project. So anyone really interested in high performance and really embracing the high performance lifestyle, I would invite you to join the group where we try and share high performance wisdom on a daily basis, hold each other accountable, challenge each other, and really help the entire group to live a high-performance lifestyle. 
Awesome. I love all those ideas. And yes, you are correct. Your name is a little bit hard to spell. It's not very phonetic. Um, so what I'm actually going to do, I love the fact that you've created like a specific page and ultimate guide just for my audience. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to create a much easier link. So anybody listening, especially if they're driving or exercising or at the gym or whatever, I want them to be able to remember it easily. So it's just going to be optimizeyourself.me slash Alon, which is A-L-L-O-N. So it's very simple, optimizeyourself.me slash A-L-L-O-N, and it'll send my listeners directly to the page that you want them to find. And then I'll have the Facebook page and I'll have your homepage and everything else in the show notes for this episode as well. Um, so that way they can find everything. Um, on that note, I cannot thank you enough for all the information that you shared with me tonight, with my audience tonight. I don't know about them, but I learned a whole bunch of stuff and I basically live and breathe all this stuff every single day. So you've upped my game. So I'm hoping that you've upped the game of my audience as well. So I really, really appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks, Zach, and thanks for having this amazing show. I love it and I'll continue listening to it. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.